Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Our first Bible reading is from Esther chapter 1, um, which will come up on the screen behind me, but is also on page 771 of the Pew Bibles. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displays the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Habana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Kashina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Masna, and Mamukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. 
Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Okay, Esther chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, which is on page 773 of the Pew Bibles. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, had suggested. 
and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Thanks for reading again, Joe. I've got a photo on the screen behind me. It is perhaps one of the most controversial magazine covers ever. Time magazine's usual practice was to put a photo on the front cover of their magazine, but this issue was all black with red text. Is God dead? This uh, magazine was published way back in 1966. Uh, The actual article that went alongside with this title was far less controversial than the front page of the magazine. But back in 1966, when it was published, this magazine title, this front cover, ruffled a lot of feathers. Time magazine received something like 3,500 letters to the editor. It was the largest number of responses they'd had ever to any one story. I wonder if today a magazine title like this would receive the attention. My guess is it would probably almost slip by unnoticed. We've had a census result published recently and if the later census results are anything to go by, Christianity is on the decline in Australia. I've got a chart on the screen behind me and if you look at that chart, there's, there's no question, is there, that back in 1971, more people identified as Christian. Back then, something like 85% of Australia identified as Christians. Today, it's somewhat less than 50%. Now, it's true that back in 1971, people probably identified as being Christian without calling Jesus their Lord and Saviour. That might not be the case today. But even taking that into consideration, the pattern's pretty clear, isn't it? Our society is less Christian than it was in our grandparents' generation. That means that our society as a whole probably knows less about the content of the Bible, less about the person of Jesus. The average person in Australia today is less aware of Christianity than their grandparents. 
the Australian newspaper, uh, there was recently an article about the decline in Christianity and the author said this, rightly, young Australians are taught to respect the dreaming stories and indigenous spirituality. But how many would be readily familiar with any of the Bible stories other than the Christmas one, despite their centrality in our culture? How many would understand the significance of Easter except as a holiday with too much chocolate? Back in our household, we we sort of came at this head-on a few days ago. We were reading together as a family the story of Adam and Eve and Genesis, the Garden of Eden in the Storybook Bible. And Hamish, my youngest, asked if Adam and Eve were Indigenous Australians. Why? We asked. Because they were the first people, said Hamish. Now, I think it's terrific that Hamish is being taught something about Indigenous culture and the history of Australia, but it does kind of highlight, doesn't it? The stories of God are becoming less well-known, even amongst pastor's kids. A few Easter's ago, I remember sitting somewhere around here and hearing Mike tell the Easter story, the story of Jesus' death to our Radiate kids. And I saw the look on one girl's face as, as she, for the first time, heard the story about who Jesus was and the fact that he died. It was all new for that girl. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, don't get me wrong here. It's not necessarily a bad thing uh, for the gospel, not something that we should necessarily be worried about. In, in Philippians, Paul speaks about his imprisonment as a means by which the gospel is advanced. He goes on to say that he's in chains for Christ. God's people often thrive when they are persecuted. Christianity often flourishes when it's under pressure. And yet, we might wonder today, what is God doing at the moment? In our moment of doubt or uncertainty, we might, we might wonder if, if Time magazine was asking the right question back in 1966. Is God dead? You know, you think about it, Christians as well as non-Christians, when they're going to the footy, they all work, walk over the footbridge from the city, don't they? It's not like God parts the sea of the River Torrens for the Christians to walk through today and the others walk across the footbridge. We don't see God as active. In fact, even sometimes as Christians, our sporting teams lose when we get to the Adelaide Oval. That might seem trivial, but we don't see God working quite the same ways as we read about it in the Bible sometimes. And we might ask, is God dead? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther together. I'm so excited about this book because I think Esther is a book for the time in which we live. It's a story set in a culture, in a world in which God's people are the minority. It's a story in which the culture and ethics and practices are far from what we're used to in the Judeo-Christian world in which, uh, that underpins Australian life. This is a story set in the Persian Empire, roughly 500 years before the coming of Jesus. Most of the story takes place in the citadel of Susa. I've got a map on the screen behind me. On the left-hand side, you'll see Jerusalem... Israel, on the right you'll see Susa, and in between is Babylon. This story is set a long way from Israel, from the promised land. It's set in a time where where the Persian Empire is the dominant power. 
And I want you to see how dominant the next slide is just kind of zooming back out a bit. And the purple sort of splotch all across the screen shows the reach and the control of the Persian Empire. It stretches from the east to the west. It's a vast, vast empire. At this time in the world, Persia is the dominant superpower. In the story of Esther, there are, there are four main characters. Mordecai and his cousin Esther the Persian king Xerxes, and the antagonist or the villain, who we haven't come across yet, but we will in weeks to come, Haman. I wondered if you noticed the missing character in the story as Joe read it to us this morning. There's no mention of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not mentioned even once in this book. It's a loud silence, isn't it? And we must as readers ask, why? Why is there no mention of God? This is... A section of the Bible, why is there no mention of God? I think the absence of God leads us to see him at work, providentially. He's there just behind the text. He's very much alive. He's not mentioned even once explicitly, but the story makes it clear that our Christian God is very much alive, very much active in this story. He's not forgotten his people, he's sovereign and he's truly in control. And I think that makes Esther a story for our time. You know, it's a story that could be scripted and run on Netflix or Stan or one of those streaming services because it's graphic, isn't it? We've already seen a bit of that horrific violence this morning. It tells of people being impaled on poles 23 metres long. Just try and think about that for a few minutes. This story speaks of thousands of people being killed should come with an MA rating that contains violence and lots of sex. But at its core, when we take away the violence and, and there's humour in this story as well, when we take away the humour and the stupidity, when those things are stripped away, I think what we see in this book is God providentially at work. Providentially at work to ensure the survival of his people. And so Esther helps us see that God is still at work today. Providentially, he's working through what might seem to be insignificant events to gather people to himself. And I think he's doing that even today. And so this book is a book for our time. And I hope it's an encouragement for you today. If you haven't already opened your Bibles, please do so. Please uh, see if you can find Esther. It's a tricky book to find. It's before Job, before Psalms in the Old Testament. Um, you can turn to page 771 if you're using one of the black church Bibles. Uh, Joe's already helpfully read two chapters this morning. I'm not going to reread many of the verses, but I do just want to read to you the first five verses of, of Esther from Esther chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, turn, turn there with me. This is what it says. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So we meet in the opening 
uh, verses of this book, King Xerxes, and he's showing off. He's giving no ordinary feast. For, for 180 days, he, he parades his wealth for all to see. It's, it's like an enormous exhibition, a showcase of his supremacy. And it's impressive, isn't it? This guy has couches made of gold. He's still trying to work out how comfortable they'd be, but he has couches made of gold and, and pavement of, of precious stones. Even the ground you walk on is impressive. And there are golden goblets, each one different, and they're filled with wine. That The story is showing us the, the power and the splendor of this king. And it's showing us the, the power and the might of Persia. The empire is huge. We've already seen that with the, the purple on the screen. But here it tells us it covers 127 provinces. And part of the reason, I think, for helping us to see it so big is to remember that there are no cars back in that time. If you lived in Persia, you're stuck in Persia because it's basically the whole world. There is no escaping the empire. And in the story, we learn about Queen Vashti. She's likewise been showing off to the women. She's been entertaining them and that is until she's summoned. And in verse 10 of chapter 1, we read that the king now, drunk on wine, commands his eunuchs to go and fetch Queen Vashti so that she can be paraded in front of the men. And what happens? She refuses. And it's there in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 1 that we see for the first time part of the way in which I think this book works. The Xerxes, the king of Persia, with his gold couches and his pavement of precious stones, calls for his queen to come... And she refuses. And despite, his, despite his power and his splendor and his vast wealth, he calls his queen to come and she doesn't. Here's a drunken king whose commands are being ignored. Now, now why does Vashti refuse the king? Well, you know, at one level it's an appalling request that he's making, isn't it? Come and show off your beauty in front of all the men. The king's been displaying his vast wealth and now he wants to display, it seems, one more of his possessions. And so it's not hard to see why Vashti might refuse. But why now? Why at this point in the life of King Xerxes? He's a very dangerous king. She could be killed, Vashti, just for appearing in front of him unsummoned. And now she's refusing the king's command. I want you to see, I think this is how the story of Esther works. This is no coincidence that at this point in the story, she's refusing the command of the king. This is not coincidence, but the providential work of God. A seeming insignificant event, Vashti refuses. That's part of the story. Now, the verses that follow this, I think, are intended to be comical. They're so stupid that they're intended to make us laugh. But before we look at them, let me just pause for a minute and acknowledge that the reality of our world in which we live today is that domestic violence is a real part of our world. It's a significant problem. It happens out there. And the unfortunate truth is it may also happen in here. I want to be crystal clear here with you today. There is no place for that in Christianity. It would be the absolutely wrong application of this text for a husband to think this is what it means to act towards a wife. There is no justification in this story 
for husbands to dominate their wives in this way. Let me say it as clearly and as simply as I can. This passage does not make it right for husbands to control their wives in this way. This is supposed to make us laugh. So having said all that, let's have a look what happens. It's supposed to be comical because this story is written for God's people and it's supposed to mock the stupidity of a drunk and hapless Persian king. The king brings in the experts now and the experts say, well, let's forbid Vashti from ever being in your presence. And in their mockery, in a sense, a law is passed that all women should respect their husbands. It's supposed to be stupid. It's supposed to make us smile, if not outright laugh, at how hapless this king is. And so we get to the end of chapter 1 with this much clear. Persia's a big empire, a huge empire. We understand it's a pretty horrible empire in some ways, certainly not the place that I'd want to live in. There's a big and there's a powerful king, and yet while he's big and powerful and wealthy, he's also kind of hapless. He seems to be easily controlled and and easily mocked. And by the end of chapter 1, he's a powerful king without a queen. It opens the start of chapter 2, and the search for a new queen begins. Now, I've got to be honest, I don't know about how a king, I don't know how a king goes out and finds a queen in life today. I don't suppose there's a sort of royal dating app that just gets passed around amongst the nobility, but there may be, I just don't know about it. And if the Netflix shows like The Crown or anything to go by, even in our modern world, dating for royals is pretty tricky. But that pales when you look at how they did it in Persia. Back then, the king's personal assistant makes this suggestion. Let's appoint commissioners to search for the beautiful young virgins and settle them in a harem and allow them a full year of special treatments and then the king can have one each night and decide which one pleases him the most. Now, Persia doesn't seem like the place you want to be a young woman in, does it? But for that matter, as one of the commentators said when I was reading uh, up on this, he said, it's not the place that you want to be a young man either. I mean, there are plenty of eunuchs in this story and they come from somewhere as well. It's during the search for this new queen that we're introduced to two of the main characters in the rest of the book, Esther and Mordecai. We're told that Mordecai is a Jew in the tribe of Benjamin, that he's a son of Jia, the Shimei, the son of Kish. That makes Mordecai, interestingly, a relative of King Saul. And Mordecai, or perhaps Mordecai's father, if we look at the timeline, had been part of the exile under King Nebuchadnezzar. And we don't... Esther doesn't talk about the exile, but if you know your Bible, you know your Israel history a little bit, you'll know something of the exile that happened under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. After the exodus, where the Jews left Egypt, the exile is perhaps their most defining moment for the Jewish people. The exile happened in about 586 BC, when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar defeated Israel and destroyed their temple. And many of the Jews that lived in Jerusalem were deported, were sent away, were exiled into Babylon. That was the central sort of area on the map that I had up earlier before. The Babylonians later were then defeated by the Persians. And the Persians had a different way of governing and they allowed uh, the Jews to return to Israel, at least some of them to return to Israel. During the time that the book of Esther is set, 
Some of the Jews have returned to Israel and are likely rebuilding the temple, but many, like Mordecai, remain in this area, remain in what we would call uh, Iran today. Mordecai is one of them. And he has a cousin who he's raised as her parents are no longer around, and her name is Esther. And she's caught up in this search for the new potential queen. Esther seems to endear herself wherever she goes. She wins first the favor of Haggai, the king's eunuch. And then in in verse 15 of chapter 2, if you want to look at it there, we're told that Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Ultimately, she also pleases the king himself. And so Xerxes sets a crown on her head and makes her the queen instead of Vashti. In the second part of chapter 2, we're we're given further insight into what life is like in Susa, what life is like in Persia. Mordecai is lounging around one day, it seems, and and he's sitting at the king's gate, and he overhears two of the king's officers, and they're conspiring to assassinate this king. Perhaps no wonder why, given what we know of Mordecai, or uh, given what we know of Xerxes already. But Mordecai takes this information to his cousin Esther, who then tells the king, and it's found to be true, and the two officials are impaled on poles. Now, as we read through this story, we're going to become pretty familiar with this method of punishment and death, pretty familiar with the idea of being impaled on poles. It seems to happen nearly every page in this book. And the chapter closes then. And I hope, in a sense, you're intrigued by by what comes next in the story because Esther as a book is a fascinating story. You have to come back next week to meet the next stage in the the story. But I want to ask, what are we to do today then with what we've read? There's three things, you'll see them on your outline, three things that I'd like you to kind of take away from the opening two chapters of this book. The first is, I want to encourage you not to get bogged down in questions of morality as we read through this story. So, for example, we might be tempted as we read this story to ask questions like, did Mordecai do the right thing by allowing Esther to be taken into the harem? Or did Esther do the right thing by trying to please the king? Or we might even ask questions like, was the king's drunkenness sinful? That They might seem like relevant questions to ask, And in one sense, they might be good questions to ask, but the text isn't designed to help us answer those questions. And even if it were, I think we're to see that Persia is such a large empire, there's no escape for those who are in the empire. The empire is vast. There's no getting away from the the culture, no getting away from the society in which they live. Those who are in Persia are stuck in the Persian system. Even those who have gone back to Jerusalem, that's still the land of Persia in a way. Don't moralize as you read through the story. That's the first encouragement. But while not moralizing, there is something in this story, I think, about ethics and morality for us to consider. From what I've read today, from what we've read today, life in the Persian Empire seems pretty scary, unpredictable and brutal. We have a king who has absolute and unchecked power. He invites you to a banquet for seven days and you might feel pretty special being invited along to that banquet and yet everything about that banquet is controlled. Even the amount of wine you drink is controlled by the king. The king is all-powerful in this society and yet he's happy to make life-changing decisions while under the influence of alcohol. 
Esther tells us about a society where women, young women, are at least terribly treated. Let's not sugarcoat what's happening in this story. Esther's not just taking part in a beauty contest here. The king is testing more than her beauty when he spends the night with her. But as I've already mentioned, it's not just a terrible place for young women. It's a, a terrible place for, for young men as well who might be turned into eunuchs. And, and come to think of it, it's not a great place to be a minority group either. This is a story in which it looks like the Jews are going to be annihilated, going to be murdered. Here's what I want you to see. This is an empire that's far from the Christian God. It's not a place I'd like to be living. It's not a place where I'd like my children to grow up. And yet for those who are there, there's no escape. This is where they find themselves. If we compare life in modern day Australia to uh, Persia back then, many of us would say that Australia has been served well by the Christian foundations that underpin our democracy and our laws. After all, it's the Christian religion which speaks about the dignity of both men and women who are created in the likeness of God. It's Christianity that tells us to do unto others as you would have them do to you. And yet if the census is anything to go by, it won't be surprising if in years to come Australia moves away from these Christian foundations. Christianity might become more of a minority voice in our society and some of us may be worried about that. What will Australia be like in years to come? Now it probably won't be like Persia, but it may not be the same as the country we grew up in. I think it's right for us at times to give thanks to God for the society in which we live, for the safety he's given us, for the peace and freedom that we enjoy today. But I think the story of Esther is trying to encourage us not to worry about these things. The story is helping us to see that God is in control. You see, for some of us, as we look at things like the census data, we might get worried about what's coming. We might dread what things will look like. And it's at that point that I think we really should hear the main message of the book of Esther. And what is that main message? It's this, that God will preserve his people. That's what Esther is about. You know, as we read this book, and you may go home and want to keep reading in the story, if you read this book today, I think sometimes it's helpful to substitute the word the Jews, where it comes up in this, to be God's people. Because that's who we are today. For those of us who call on Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we are God's people. And the big story in the book of Esther is that God is at work preserving his people. Now, God's not mentioned by name in this book. Because I think the book of Esther is helping us to see that God is at work behind the scenes. With a cursory glance, the things that might look like, a cursory glance, things might look like coincidences. The book of Esther is written in a way that we can be sure that this is God at work preserving his people. Did Vashti refuse the king on that night out of coincidence? Of all the women that could have been chosen by the king, why Esther? Why is Mordecai at just the right spot to be able to overhear the assassination plot? The book of Esther wants us to see these things not just as coincidence, but as God at work. And I love that because 
today, although God could and still might work through amazing miracles and through big, bold words, it seems to me that today God often works in a similar way to this. Providentially growing his church and preserving a people for himself. Of course, today we have the New Testament. We have uh, more uh, of a story about what God has done. Today, we can read about God acting definitively and purposefully in the person of Jesus. We can read about Jesus' death and resurrection. We know God has been active through that. But today, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Esther helps us to see that God will still preserve his people. He won't abandon him. This is a book that clearly shows us God is not dead, but very much alive and at work in our world today. Can I encourage you to come back next week to see how this story unfolds? Next week, we're going to meet the villain in the story, Haman, and Esther will be confronted with the biggest decision in her life. I hope you can join us as we keep working our way through this book. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move on. Father God, we want to give you thanks for this story, uh, this interesting story that tells us a lot about how you were at work uh, back in the time of the King Xerxes. We thank you that uh, the story of the Bible as a whole shows us that uh, you are in control and sovereign, that you are working to fulfill your promises, and that you will build your church. Amen.